Hey, readers and writers. This episode was recorded with Squadcast, a web-based software that records studio-quality episodes from anywhere in the world. Squadcast records at each user's end and then uploads it to the cloud. So even if the call quality wasn't great at the time, the end file is always perfect. So that's a good thing. And it's never lost, which is even better. (laughs) It's a paid service, so there is that. But for me, it's been worth it. If you're in the market for recording software, there's a link in the show notes to get a free trial. Now let's get on with the show. So hi, Wesley. How are you doing today? So far, so good. Good afternoon. Where are you calling me from? I'm in New York State. Oh, okay. So we're in the same time zone. Probably That's always weather. nice. Yes, probably. It's kind of gorgeous right yeah. now, but a threat of thunderstorm looms closely. That's exactly the cast here. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, that could be tough in 150 words or less. <laughs> We've got 45 minutes. Well, as my friends keep telling me, that they say this, not me, that I've lived an interesting life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some of the highlights would have to include is I got my PhD in American literature from the University of North Texas back in 1990. In those days, my main claim to fame was I was a Mark Twain scholar. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of scholarship, writing for encyclopedias and essays and scholarly conferences, mm-hmm. things like that. Interesting note to interject, I live near the Mark Twain Estate up here in New York. Oh, you live near Elmira? I do. I'm about 40 minutes away from Elmira. Oh, I love Elmira. I've been there many times for the study of the Mark Twain Studies conferences they have there every four years. <laughs> it's a wonderful. Yeah, you got to go up and see his writing cabin that, he, that his sister-in-law built for him. I think I have once or twice, not recently, but that was always like on the school field trip list because I also, I grew up sort of around here too, so. Okay, lucky you. <laughs> I know, Mark Twain in the history. Well, see, at the time when I got my degree, I was in the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, where mm-hmm. I was also a drummer in various local blues bands and still have friends from those old days. That's for my honeymoon nice. a couple of weeks ago and got the old gang together some of the old band members and that's friends. fun yeah it's awesome to have friends you've known for decades mm-hmm. it's astonishing especially when my whole family is gone i'm the only one left so it's nice to have that extended family down there mm-hmm. exactly what else did I do? oh then i moved up to sherman texas because i taught college english for 33 years okay and part of that time i was in sherman texas and I started reading Charles Bukowski. And I thought, crime, and if he can do that, I can do that. And I did. <laughs> Isn't that how most authors start? Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but for about five years, that's what it was all about. I had got a pretty good reputation for poetry. And I keep recycling that stuff from time to time because I moved up here back to Pennsylvania, Harrisburg. This is where I grew up. Okay. I met my first wife here. I actually re-met her. We knew each other back in grade school and high school. We were in the same class together. I didn't know her. She remembered me. Um, and then the poetry kind of went away, and I got into writing other things. We mm-hmm. started with four books on fictional espionage. Okay. Uh, and the, that started when I kept seeing all these books and all these different TV series. The Prisoner, The Man from Uncle, The Avengers. I mm-hmm. get smart, all that. But nobody had ever written a book about the whole genre. 
So I thought, okay, I will. Because <laughs> I got a half the research right here in my um, uh, loft up here. Mm-hmm. There's other books. And so I started going back to 1951 when it all began and then up to the present day, which was 2001 when I got this book together. And that launched me on a spy career, which led to four books all total. One big website that's still there and growing called www.spywisecret.ca.com. And that got me started in my early days of doing a lot of interviews. I got to be good friends with Vic Flick, who was the original James Bond guitarist, and George Lazenby, who was James Bond and Your Majesty's Secret Service. And in fact, uh-huh. I did with the two of them together back in the day. It's being rebroadcast this week on one of my two radio shows, which I guess I'll get to in a minute or two here. Okay. But anyway, all kinds of things happen for me. People used to say, when you write those kind of niche books, don't expect any income from them directly. Think of them as calling cards. They will That's open very doors true. For you. And boy, that was absolutely true. I started getting offers to help work on TV series and to go down to the International Spy Museum and Nostalgia Convention to do programs. Mm-hmm. And, go on, and that's, that goes on to this day. I've got a pretty good rep. Um, including appearing on Al Jazeera television, I guess that was two years ago now, talking about uh, uh, Mossad agent Ellie Cohen. Mm -hmm. And then I frankly got sick of spies. And that's when I started writing sci-fi novels. Okay. I was sitting in my office at work and my mind was drifting. And I had this weird idea. What would happen to a blind guy who gets zapped to an alternate universe and he doesn't understand the language. He doesn't understand the culture. He has no idea where he is. How is this guy going to survive? Obviously that kind of starts with my own experiences with blindness because I've got retinitis pigmentosa. So I've done all the things that I've been telling you about blind. Mm -hmm. That kind of got the beta earth chronicles going. And then I had to come up with, well, if he's going to be there, what's he going to do? Because if these scientists over there want stuff from him, well, it can't be anything he carries because they'll just take it from him. Right. What about his biology is going to interest them? And that's when I created the plague with no name on Beta Earth. They have a plague that wipes three out of four male babies out their first year. So polygamy is the norm. So as he gets out of being a captive and then as he escapes across the border into a uh, different culture, his family starts to build and becomes Tribe Renburn. And that builds into adventure after adventure after adventure that led to four books on Beta Earth, which led to the third Earth, because I sent some of the characters over from Beta Earth to a third Earth where everything's completely different. (laughs) Interesting. Well, you can't do the same thing over and over again. Right. And then I started a new series where I took the children of Malcolm Renburn and some of his wives and brought them to our Earth some 20 years in the future after global warming has had a horrendous impact and after plagues and plagues of weaponized viruses have really decimated humanity. Mm-hmm. And they show up and humanity is not very receptive to these aliens, because they're talking about multiple deities and polygamy and god mm-hmm. concepts like that. So they imprison them until they escape. And that leads into a bunch of different adventures. 
<laughs> and my, I guess it seems to be my the best character I've got going, or at least the one that gets the best response, was a lady from our planet, twenty years in the future, named Mary Carpenter, mm -hmm. as a marrying one of the aliens and bearing children, because that's one of their missions is to bear offspring that have the genetics from all the different planets. Okay, and she's a secret agent, and we have all these different prequel stories that I've been writing. Um, about her that kind of set the stage before the Renbrins arrive on Alpha Earth and how she takes on white terrorists and um, South American smugglers and all kinds of different things like that. Interesting. So okay. All these different things. And, um, and that's now I'm getting sick of sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of switched over back to spy stuff again, got back. Okay. But at the same time, I used to be, for seven years, co-host of an online radio show called Dave White Presents, where I did a lot of interviews with musicians and actors and Hollywood insiders, everybody from Gary Berghoff to members of Credence Clearwater to Grand Funk to Big Brother and the Holding Company to Jackie mm -hmm. Dannon, and it goes on and on and on and on. It was a lot of fun. In fact, sometimes people ask me, what's my favorite thing that I've done? And I got to say, interviewing top of the list, you know, because it's a lot of fun to ask people stories about you know, how, the, how their creative careers go. Mm -hmm. And mm. well, I got back in the game. Uh, Karina Carcantis, my publicist, my friend, my producer, whatever you want to call her, uh, got the idea, well, let's put up a podcast. So I started getting a lot of those old interviews and we got a podcast page up. And I was telling that to a lady who was interviewing me for a show about espionage on um, TNCradio.live. And she says, well, why don't you bring us podcast over here and we'll create a show? That works for me. It's not like I drag out these old chestnuts, but I'll start mm -hmm. running around looking for new interviews because I love doing that stuff. And so we started up that show about six weeks ago. And then I found out their account. They're really weird about music. Now, you can let them use anything, which is a normal practice for a radio station. Mm -hmm. So just last week, I called up KSAV, my old home, when I was co-host of Dave White Presents. And the owner of the station says, well, why don't you do a show over here? That was really nice of him. Yes, it was. Well, like he pointed out that all of the guys who had shows at the time we were on are still there. For me, it's like going home. Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, you know everybody. I know everybody. And uh, well, we all got along. We used to you know, co-promote each other's shows and things like that. So soon as the first episode airs, we, could, we just recorded the first show on Monday with a lady named um, Carla Olson, who's been in the music biz for so long. She's worked with just about everybody and has this wonderful new album out called Americana Railroad which is 18 songs about railroads with everybody from John Fogarty to Rocky Burnett, and you can go on and on and on. So I thought that'd be a great subject to kick off a new show, and the interview was great. So <laughs> does it sound like I'm really lazy and boring over here? <laughs> no, it sounds like you're busier than I am. Well, what else would you like to know? That, oh, God, that was a long <laughs> That was, that was a lot. Um, I don't know. Let's boil it back down to the writing. What do you, so you're tired of sci-fi and you're going back to spy novels. So what are you working on right now? Well, oddly enough, when, 
I just got remarried. Well, I got married for the second time um, back in June. And from a honeymoon. Congratulations. Down, thank you. We went down to Texas so I could show Grace all my old haunts. Mm-hmm. We went down to the Stonely P Bar. And I was sitting in there and I was flashing on this one story I'd written featuring that lady I was talking about earlier. Right. Carpenter, And it was the setting for one of the scenes in that story. And it got me thinking, what can I do to make that story better? I do a lot of that. That's kind of mm-hmm. a constant. As soon as I got a book and it's not done, it's just waiting for me to think of ways to come back and revise it. Yep. And I personally think I am never done writing a story. Like sometimes you just have to say, okay, enough. I promise yeah. I will not work on it anymore. It's never finished though. It's never finished. Yeah, that's, that's, that's me. Exactly. So I started thinking, okay. And I was working on that just last night. When we get off this interview, that's what I'll be doing. It's okay. called the fates of evil men. And it's kind of sprucing it up. Cause my friend Karina is forever looking for contests to send short stories to. Mm-hmm. All righty, well, we'll clean up some of the old chestnuts and see if they got a new life out there somewhere. After I, right, you know, spruce them up. And so you're mainly working in short format right now. Short format right now is right. Yeah, I don't okay. have any novels in my head. I know everybody he's wanting me to get away from the Beta Earth series, and I understand why. Mm-hmm. Even if it is, and I got three planets to play with. <laughs> um, you eventually just get burnt out. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's just it exactly. And I just don't have a clue what else I would like to write about in terms of fiction. In mm-hmm. terms of nonfiction, that just never ends. I've always got stuff to do there. What would you do if you did a nonfiction story? Book slash essay? I don't know what to call that, but... Well, right now, embarrassingly enough, I got Dragon, which converts um, uh, speech to text. And I'm going to start getting a bunch of those old interviews that I'm using as podcast and radio interviews, put them in the text and create books out of them for Bear Manor Media. Oh, nice. So I don't know how many books I can get out of that. I'll actually quite mm-hmm. a few, especially since I'm still at it. I'm going to I'm be tired of writing the Vader Earth Chronicles, but this weekend I'm going to Shoreleave, which is a sci-fi convention down in Hunt Valley, Hunt Valley Maryland. Okay. And we're hunting for interviews. <laughs> There's all these authors and actors and performers that are going to be there, and I've got mm-hmm. business. Do you have anything, anyone you want to catch? Oh, yeah. Anyone in specific? Few, yeah. I would like to talk to some of the authors, like Greg Cox. I interviewed him several times back in the old days, but I've never met him personally. Mm-hmm. There's Peter David, who did a lot of great Star Trek novels, among other things. Uh-huh. Um, Oh, there's a couple more names. I'm just not going to leap to my mind right this minute. But that's kind of funny. It's the authors I'm more interested in than a lot of the actors because I think it's a different generation. A lot of those actors are for shows that younger people are watching that I never even heard of. It's with, like what? Oh, well, that's just it. Um, the only two I recognized, I remember Warehouse 13 and I remember Firefly. Oh, okay. I see where you're going with that. But a lot of these other ones, I don't, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always, um, I mean, nothing against the actors because they do kind of embody the character at some point. But I don't know, the, for me, the writer, the author, that's where the, that's where the interest is for me. 
Like, how did you make this? Why did you make this? What was the inspiration for doing that? Well, getting into the creative process of actors is also interesting to me. For example, mm-hmm. just the other week, me and Karina both interviewed William Davis. He was a cigarette-smoking man on X-Files. Okay. And he just wrote a book on acting and directing because he likes to direct. And so we talked a lot about, well, how do you create a character? How do you become a character? And the different schools of thought is that you've got to become somebody else. And this was, no, you can't become somebody else. You know, the essence of that character is you. It's just, what would you do in these circumstances? And, okay. And I think it's a lot more depth on that than I should know or could. But, um, well, that's really it. Because one of the things I like talking to actors and producers and, and script writers and comedians and all of that is how they do what they do. I don't give a rat's tail about the soap opera parts of their life, their marriages and all that kind of thing. Right. I want to know about their careers, how this happened, how this came to be. And, of course, quite a lot of it's just luck in the right place at the right time when they got this particular role and they become famous for that role and then that pegs them for the rest of their careers. Let's get back to your stories. Um where you get inspiration for, well, you said you went back to the Mary Carpenter series. Like, where did you, was the inspiration just from being back in Texas? Or did something else hit you that made you want to work on it more? That's what sprung me to doing it. It kind of reminded me, I went back and started watching some of the old Avengers. Because her appearance and a lot of her physical attributes are based on Diana Rigg, who played Emma Peel on the Avengers. Okay. So I was, I was watching the Avengers to get some, you know, thoughts about her. But mm-hmm. um, where do I, ideas, they're everywhere. Influences are just, you know, in, your, in the world around you. Creating Beta Earth was kind of intriguing, because I used to have, oh, I had about 87 minors when I was going to college. Anthropology mm-hmm. and history especially. <laughs> um and no, other cultures, I oftentimes think of the Beta Earth Chronicles as more anthropology than sci-fi, because there's not a lot of robots no, or um, aliens of that kind, or spaceships or that kind of thing. It's that family moving from culture to culture, no, experiencing Beta Earth and a variety of characters and different classes and countries and backgrounds. And to me, that was the fun part. Is how do you adapt kind of cultures and classes from here and put them in the context of Beta Earth, which has a very tribal structure, because the political, which seems to annoy a lot of female readers. I just don't like that. Okay. Well, it's a different planet for crying out loud. Get over it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, goodness gracious, um, I lost track because my computer's doing weird stuff. Oh, we were talking about inspirations. Right. So how you said, well, let's, let's go back to the Beta Earth series. You said you were just daydreaming one day in your office. Yeah. Um, did you start more with the, the theme of the idea of like, how does a blind man navigate something that's completely alien? Or did you just, or did you come up with the plot first and then work the on that? The theme was there first and the plot came along as all the different characters came in, because I created a lot of characters as they came along. Each and every one of them had kind of a point. They were like two of them come from, they're very poor farmers from a little valley, then they're kind of disenfranchised mm-hmm. from their world. 
and some of the others come from your higher classes and some are educated and some aren't and they have different body types and they, like I said, they come from different places so they're able to represent lots of different uh, types of uh, subclasses or subcultures on beta earth but I didn't realize it at the time, but it came back to me later when I was getting into some of the later books. But I don't want to just tell a story that, you know, it's got a plot and action and all that. I wanted to say something. Mm-hmm. And my favorite reviews of The Blind Alien when it came out is people would say it's sci-fi, but so much more. And then they okay. talk about what the lessons are there, how it relates to contemporary issues like racism and tolerance and um, equality here on our planet. Um, and uh, I was really happy about that because they spotted that before I really was aware that I was doing that. <laughs> but, Sometimes what that's what an outside perspective can do. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so then they came back around again, especially when they came back to Alpha Earth Return to Alpha in book six of the series. What's our planet going to be like in the future? So it was, I could talk about what global warming has done and what has happened after all these open ice plagues. What kind of humanity are we going to be after we're just beaten to the death? Mm-hmm. And I did not want to go where you have all these death camps and all these things and all these other dystopian futures. So I hope I came up with a fresh approach That's, um, for readers to decide. Okay. Oh. I haven't read them. What approach did you take? Approach uh, for which book? Uh, for, well, you, we were talking about the, the global warming. Oh, okay. Was there multiple approaches? Well, oh, that's interesting. You asked that. Because the first four books, one of the things that readers have to contend with is that I tell it from a variety of perspectives. Mm-hmm. For a while, you hear it from Malcolm Renborn, the alpha man from Alpha. And then Barg, the blue-skinned slave from Malikin, tells her part of the story bit by bit. And then we mix in the stories of Lori and then Elsbeth and the later on Jolene. And they have this rotating, it's kind of like an oral history. Okay. Like a rock and roll band, you know, where one talks about mm-hmm. and then somebody else. And then becomes John, here comes Paul, here's Ringo. Um, and here they all, you know, bit by bit, the story unfolds from a multiplicity of perspectives. And from my part, I tried my best to have uh, a variety of um, dialects and linguistic things where the girls from the poorer cultures talk one way and the ones that are more educated talk a little differently. And I tried to build that into the series, how successful I was, I don't know. Nobody's ever commented on that. But then in Return to Alpha, I just told it from a third person narrator looking down at everything. Okay. Figured enough was enough with the multiple... Well, I did the same thing in the third Earth, where Markham goes over to the Serapin Earth and had everything from his perspective. I didn't try to toss in a bunch of uh, different voices. You know, trying different things, trying different ways to do things. Right. Um, that's that's something I do, I guess. And then, like I said, with, with uh, the Mary Carpenter stories and then the alien stories after they escape from this prison called the Citadel, which sits in the middle of I don't know where. Nobody knows. Okay. West. Um, they go out west and end up in, um, well, actually Vancouver. And um, um, I lost track. What was I saying? <laughs> uh, about your multiple, we were talking about point of views. Oh, yeah. Like how the, how the first one was multiple point of views. And then the the alpha, back to alpha earth was just told from the third person point of view. Yeah. 
Yeah, the third and uh, yeah, the third Earth is told from a first person point of view, but just one character. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, the return of yeah, that's definitely from well, the point of view. Well, look, whichever character happens to be on on stage, but it's just a third person omnipotent narrator describing what's going on with them as they meet Sasquatch or um, uh, run across the terrorists that come after Mary mm-hmm. and things like that. Did you have a hard time switching from that first person over to a third? I, no. I've talked to a couple authors now, and the ones that do do that, some of them do seem like they have trouble going back and forth. Like if they're so used to one, it's it's very challenging to go to the other one. No, I didn't find that difficult, really. I find it a lot easier. But yeah. again, when I was doing the first person stuff in the first four books, I was using beta speech. They were all talking in the dialect of, the, of beta earth. Okay. They don't say you cannot. They say um, you do, you not do, you know, kind of Yoda speak or something like that. Okay. But, um, and they, you know, it's a very active voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of tricky. Um, so that, that took a lot of work to, to shape those first four books in both language and story and setting and plot. And it was a lot of work. Or it's returned to Alpha. Well, it was a lot of work, but it's a different kind of work. How long did it take you to make that first uh, beta book? Um, you said it was a lot of work. I'm, I'm curious about how much time it took you to, to write it and get it out there. <sighs> you know, it's been so long ago now. <laughs> the one thing I remember was that I started working on that while I was writing the spy books. Okay. Because what I would do is I would work on the spot, we'll get sick of that, go work on the blind alien, get sick of that, go back to the spy book. Yeah, I completely hear you there. I, I'm notorious for working on more than one story at a time. Oh, yeah, they're so different. One is research-oriented and mm-hmm. not my story. I'm retelling the stories of Graham Greene and Eric Ambler and Ian Fleming and Tom Clancy and all that. And then to mine. That's a whole different mindset. So it was kind of right. kind of go back and forth. Um, so when you're plotting out, I guess any story, I guess probably more towards your fiction stories. Um, what's your process? Do you build them character? Do you have do you build the characters and then build the plot around them, or are you building the plot and then adding the characters to complement the plot? Most of the time, the characters came first. Okay. And I often say the characters create themselves. They say, okay. show up. And then I start giving them attributes so they can fulfill the role that I need them to do in the storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to be able to uh, complement the other uh, characters in the family by having these kinds of abilities and these kinds of skills. Um mm-hmm. And these kind of uh, personality traits, because they're going to integrate all these different personalities together. Mm-hmm. And then the story kind of develops once they're in place. And then I had to kind of keep thinking of more. The, yeah, the plot part was keep putting up with more ways to put the family in jeopardy. Yes, <laughs> because in any story, you, you need something to go wrong terribly all the time. All the time. Yeah, when it first started off, it was Malcolm. Okay, here he is. He's a blind guy. He first thinks he's on a spaceship before he realizes what's going on. 
and then he's a slave, and then he has to escape, and then he starts building his tribe. And so as he himself says, it's no longer my story, it's the story of Tribe Renberg. And so they have they get kicked out of one country and then another, and then the whole big chunk of the city called the Garden gets blown up by a scientific experiment gone wrong. Mm-hmm. That must have been around 2001, thereabouts, I think about it. Okay. kind of worried that readers might connect that with 9-11. That, they might, mm, that kind of yeah. disaster is in the same light. Uh-huh. The book didn't come out till like over a decade later, so that wasn't a problem by then. But, um, you know, how do you contend with that when half the, when the entire culture blames you for the death of thousands when you weren't to be the blame? Mm-hmm. That was the, kind of the big culminating um, disaster that was in book one, which kind of set up what happens in book two, which is really a transitional book. But then it's not Aren't they so all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's different things because they're different co- on different continents and different countries, different mm. pressures. Because of his biology, there's this big thing called the collective that's manipulating because they want to find the, the genetic code that will end the plague, and they think that he should have it in him. So they want to be able to control him. So the fact he's got this family kind of puts up a buffer between him and them. And then they want his kids because they think his kids should probably contain. And sooner or later, that is what happens with one of them, at least. And um, so they're chasing him all over the world because they want to, you know, capture that tribe and put them in um, confinement of some kind. Mm-hmm. They're going to fight for their freedom just about everywhere they go. So that kind of defines what kind of lives they choose to live and where they choose to live at. Then uh, they get kidnapped at sea. and um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Something bad always has to happen. Something bad always has to keep going. Yeah, that's right. How do you think your writing has evolved since you started and where you are now? Well, that is such a good question because I know... <laughs> I can tell changes, especially when I go back and do revisions. I uh-huh. hope it's cleaner. I hope it's tighter. I hope mm-hmm. it's more direct. I hope it's less wordy. I hope it's more descriptive. Because for me, that has always been a bugaboo. Not surprisingly, if you're blind, it's very difficult for me to picture anything. Mm-hmm. So I have to kind of create what something looks like. Uh, well, yeah, there was an interesting little lesson. I remember I go to movies and they mm-hmm. give us these headsets where you have a narrator going through and telling what's happening on the screen. Okay. And I remember listening to one of them when there was a scene in a room in the castle where the narrator was describing the curtains blowing and the uh, the wind going through the candles and all that. And it flashed on me. That's what we as writers do. We got to translate what <laughs> visual and put it on paper uh-huh. and tell the world about it. Sometimes that's really hard. It's, yeah, it's very hard. Yeah. You know, what's the sensory information? What's too much? Right. Yeah. I was just about ready to say, like, actually, maybe the hardest part is knowing how much of that to cut out uh-huh. and then just leave it bare bones. Yeah, that's a. I don't mind cutting. I do a heck of a lot of cutting. Mm-hmm. I can whack out old pages, old passages. Old. Sometimes I worry I'm cutting too much. I wonder. 
I feel, I feel like I've got too much. Well, no, that's not to think about it. No, I just, that's my own little personal thing. Like, I feel like I write lots and lots of description and then it's like, okay, this is too much. I need to cut it down. And then I worry like, oh, did I do too much? Do the people not understand now what's going on? I do think it's important to give them a setting. They like settings. Mm -hmm. I found out the reader or writer's group I belong to. That they, they wanted more. What does it look like? What does this person look like? What does this spaceship look like? What does, you know, you name it. Look yeah, I think that. I think we're coming from, I write um, in like the natural world now, like that we're currently living in and you're writing sci-fi. So I think that's way more important in sci-fi where you don't know what anything looks uh, like. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, you got to create the whole world for the rear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They have to understand what this alien planet looks like and what the aliens look like and I don't know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Never ending, yeah. And it was really challenging because we have a blind character. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I started off, you know, getting the other characters, you know, the blend of the story and tell things. Uh -huh. There's a whole lot he can't tell you. He doesn't know anything looks like. Dimensions mm -hmm. and, you know, size. Um, getting around a room from one side to the other, you know, for me, that can be a real challenge. That's just, you know, the 12 foot radius. Right. This guy, you know. <laughs> Everything is different. The way they make buildings is different. They're all circular. They're all round. Mm -hmm. On Earth, everything's in pyramids, and you know, he has to adapt. Always, well, he get he gets his sight back for that book. But you know, for all those years, he he doesn't know what his wives look like. He doesn't know what his kids look like. He doesn't know what animals look like over there. Mm -hmm. uh, he never will. And um, so that makes made him for an interesting narrator. I can imagine. Um, so you're working with Karina. Um, what is your favorite way to market your work? I don't think I have a favorite way to market. I hate <laughs> Oh, I hate it. There's just so much crap I get in my inbox. For 10 bucks, we can do this. For 15, uh -huh. we can do this. For nothing, we can do this. And absolutely none of it that I can tell is worth a hell of beans. Mm -hmm. Easily. Marketing sucks. Form of marketing is what we're doing now interviews mm -hmm. i love interviews and i love line sign live signings i don't do enough of them but uh yeah especially with the pandemic uh-huh yeah that really clipped a lot, yeah, a lot of wings there do you use social media much too uh, uh much too much market <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, i belong to a ton of facebook groups for writers and sci-fi writers and uh -huh. writers and that's where Do you feel like the social media marketing gets you anywhere? No. Like, honestly? No. Yeah, I kind of come to that conclusion, too. Other than making connections, because I do a lot of book reviews. That's another thing we didn't get back to in my early description of me. I've written, I don't yeah. know how many bloody book reviews. It's crazy. Uh, for bookpleasures.com is my main outlet. A lot of my, my various websites. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't get the impression of social media. There's, I think the problem is, is there's just too many of us. Yes, it's there's awful. too many people trying to shout in your ear all at the same time. Uh huh. Every you know, everybody's an author, especially. It's kind of with the same with musicians too. Mm -hmm. Don't need a studio anymore. You can produce a high quality album in your living room mm -hmm. with just a laptop and some uh, microphones. That's about all you need, and it can be really well done. 
mm-hmm. writers, they can produce their own books, do it indie style, you know. Um, right. I mean, I mean, I've talked to a lot of authors doing this, and it just seems like everybody's just kind of like, I don't know how to let people know I wrote a book. <laughs> like, I've written it, and now I don't know how to tell people I made one. Well, there's a lot of ways to tell people you've written whether they're going to be interested, I don't know. Right. Again, it's like, oh, was it 50,000 books a month, something like that, that go up on Amazon? Mm, I wouldn't be surprised. That sounds like a ripe number. It seems like I read that somewhere. It's like 50,000 new titles go up on Amazon every month. How the hell do you compete in that? And, of course, mm-hmm. a lot of these, these groups that you talk to about marketing stuff, you're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. It's a whole lot of authors. Not, and, of course, every reader is nothing. I made a joke at one of the book signings I was at. Nobody reads science fiction anymore. Everybody's busy writing it. <laughs> I like that. That's good. <laughs> um, so uh, I lost track of my where I was in the list. Oh, yes. So what would you say your biggest influences are when you're working? Whew. I know, big loaded question. Like, are you influenced by other authors, music? I don't know. What help? What what gets the story moving for you? Well, I would like to point to some of the authors I admire. Like Frank Herbert always leaps to the top of my list. Mm-hmm. But I can't possibly compare what I do with what he did. My God, well, there is an epic. There, that is a master. Mm. Uh, there are so many really wonderful. You know, you can go from Highland to Asimov to. Uh, I can go on and on and on, and they're they're great, and I can't compete with them. And they do what they do, and I don't want to do what they did, which is one of the reasons mm-hmm. why Beta the Chronicles is so different, and maybe what annoys some readers is makes it so different, is I don't want to go where people have gone before. Why retell the story of um, you know landing on another planet and encountering things like Jean Luc Picard wandering around finding stuff. Right. Oh, yeah, that's one little story I'll toss in. One thing I, kind of, I love Star Trek. Do not get me wrong. <laughs> a house full of Star Trek memorabilia and autographs and toys and a whole wall of Hallmark ornaments. But one thing that always drives me nuts is that when the Enterprise had come to your little planet, whether it's with Kirk or Picard or whoever, they'd circle around the planet and they would have one guy they'd talk to to represent the whole planet. Maybe two if there's two warring factions. Mm -hmm. Now, what kind of planet would really work that way? You couldn't talk to Earthlings that way. No, you definitely couldn't talk to Earth that way, let alone one country in Earth like that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that just, not for an hour long drama, you understand why. They've got to keep Mm -hmm. defined and specific. Oh, yeah, I understand the mechanics of it, but that just doesn't seem realistic. Yeah. That's what, you know, that's, that's what I always prefer. I always prefer the more complex. That's why the Beta Earth Chronicles to me is more sprawling, more, uh, you know, all these different cultures and different backgrounds and different um, history, mm-hmm. languages and everything. Because that's what our Earth was really like. It's so you know, complicated and complex. that I would think these other Earths would be the same way, at least in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think any complex society is going to act like that. We got a complex society. Hey, we are winding down on our 45 minutes, so let's get this wrapped up. Um, 
So where can listeners find you online? Where can they connect and talk to you? Or I guess offline. (laughs) Well, several places. Well, actually, a lot of places. Um, I've got two websites. One is for my spy stuff. That's Mm -hmm. spywisesecret.ca.com. That's all one word, all lowercase. All my science fiction stuff can be found at drwesleybritain.com. All my books and writings are all at the, my Amazon author page. Uh, okay. Got Facebook page. I've got several Facebook pages, one for spies, one for science fiction, one for me. <laughs> I'm always promoting like crazy, especially the radio show these days. Sometimes books, but it's been a while since I've done much book promo. Um, but uh, there's various Facebook pages just for just for that. Uh, we got Twitter. What else we got? Almost everything. Some of them use, some of them don't use as much as I used to. I had a mm-hmm. Goodreads for a long time. I got really kind of tired of Goodreads. Yeah. Um, I, I've been talking to several people, and they all kind of seem to have the same reaction to Goodreads. Like, there's some people who use Goodreads religiously, but it doesn't seem like the authors, not so much. I don't know what you get out of it. Uh, I had a blog running there. I was always putting up stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. Well, okay, this is fun, but it's not getting you anything. Not getting me any traction, yeah. But yeah, if you want to find me, goodness, just Google my name, Wesley Britton, and I'll pop up all kinds of places. <laughs> so we've got two radio and shows, two radio stations, Amazon, the two websites. That's true. You've got Facebook, your radio shows too. Um, I'm all over the place. Uh, where can they buy a copy of your books, plural? Well, that would be Amazon. Would be in one mm-hmm. place. A lot of them. The first six you can get through Bear Manor Media. Okay. They're my publisher for the first six. For the latter ones, that are all through Lulu. Um, and then Karina's got them all. Oh, I'm gonna plug in for Return to Alpha. We do have an audio version of it that was read by okay. British narrator Edmund Bloxon. Did a Nice Good job with it. Wonderful job with it. <laughs> I'm always amazed at how well, like, the audio people do an amazing job. Like, yeah. I cannot do that. I can't make my voice do all that stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what's the name of the place that was Audible. Oh, audible.com, I guess it is. Yeah. I think if you, got, you sign up for, you can get one free book. Well, Return to Alpha can be that free book. Nice. Okay. But it, that's not expensive there. A lot of them are on sale for 99 cents. We're always running lost leaders on them. Uh, okay. BearMatterMedia.com would have, like I said, the first six. Mm-hmm. Audible's got that one version of Return to Alpha, but um, oh, Amazon's, you know, they're not you know, <laughs> shopping, I'd have to say. Right. And how about your short stories? Where can people find those? Well, there's two collections of them. One is called Alpha Tales 2044. That's got my favorites. Um, and then there's um, Behind Alien Lines, which has a completely different cast of characters, different children of the Renbirds fighting a war in um, Alma on Beta Earth. And it's largely based, at the time I was reading all of these books on the French underground during World War II. Mm-hmm. And I used a lot of the characters of the situations from history 
and put them on the in science fiction terms over on the other planet. So there's one, two, three in that book that are, uh, yeah, behind alien lines is the most spy-fi of all the stuff I've written is those three stories. There, you know. Did you say spy-fi? Yes, I did. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's a that's a very common term. I just wrote an article about that for a website. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You can go back to 1906. It's any time you get you merge elements of science fiction with this. Uh huh. Think James Bond. A lot of his stuff is spy-fi, or the TV shows, The Avengers, and The Man from Uncle, and things like that. I always think of Harry Harrison, the stainless steel rat. <laughs> um, a lot of Star Trek episodes, you know, they're doing spy stuff. They're going undercover in different places. Um, very, very, very popular subgenre. Mm, I love that. I love that word. In fact, I got some friends of mine who have a band called Spy Fire. At least they did before they broke it up. I'm using their music for lots of things in the radio shows. All right, Wesley. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Pleasure talking to you, too. Glad we got past the technology hurdle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. You have a great afternoon. Read and Write Podcast is edited and produced by Deborah Zebarth. Music was provided by Lo-Fi Girl and can be found at lofigirl.com or on their YouTube channel. Audio effects were created by Red Octopus and Black River Phonogram. Show notes and previous episodes can be found at readandwritepodcast.com. Thank you.